remain standing for the reading of the text this morning. We'll be focusing on Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, but we will once again read, beginning at verse 3, the section of the Sermon on the Mount that began this sermon with these great Beatitudes. Now hear the Word of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes of the heart with your spirit and give us an understanding that we would be attentive, not only in our minds, but with our lives to the things that are here spoken of about your people. And pray that you would grow us in the knowledge and grace, in these graces, we pray, and bring forth much fruit from the preaching now of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we have worked our way through these Beatitudes, we have considered how each one is not a moral code of ethics or something new that we are to go and do. No, these are attributes, these are characteristics that every true regenerate Christian has. It's true of him. An attribute is something that characterizes And these are characteristics that describe a Christian, who he is, and what his character is like to some degree or another. But these are not natural. Not a single one of them is a natural characteristic of a natural fallen man in sin. But it's quite impossible, actually, for a natural unregenerate man to be of this character. It is not of his nature to be like this. Yes, there are fakes and there are imposters that come up that that look on the surface that may identify in some way that can be emulated maybe in the flesh, but the true and genuine character that is herein revealed is not something of this world. It is not something that fallen man possesses. And as we come to this last beatitude, it sounds like something quite different from the rest. Something as a result of the others. But with a bit of understanding that we laid from last Lord's Day of this great cosmic battle that has taken place ever since the fall of man and the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent and defeat the old foe, we understand from that, that this will be truly a characteristic of every genuine Christian. He will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
because of a great cosmic battle. We will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness because of our close association with Jesus, because of our inseparable union with Him. And as He came into the world, into this hostile, fallen world, the world did not receive Him. The world was dark and they loved their darkness because their ways were wicked and evil. But Jesus had business to do here. He had a war to fight and He had a battle to win. And Jesus came into this world to turn things around and change the world. He came to do something here. But the world would not be defeated without a fight. Because the people love their darkness. And last Lord's Day, we considered the nature of the world and what was going on here in this fallen world from Genesis 3.15 forward. And this great cosmic battle that is taking place here on the earth of which you and I are a part of, if you like it or not, you're on one side or the other. But to live the Christian life with joy in the midst of even the hardest trials, we must understand the dynamics of what is going on here, and we must play our role in the world and know our place in it. Because this world as we know it is not our home, nor should we grow too comfortable here the way things are. There is a righteous discontent, if you will, in our place in this world. And because of that righteous discontent, there is something to be done. But before there is something to be done, there is some, something to be. And that's what he is describing here. Because you are of this characteristic, of this new nature, of this new race of a person... You will be in this cosmic battle on the other side in which unrighteousness will now be your assault. So let's begin with thinking about this in a little bit more detail as I conclude last Lord's Day message in part two. And reiterating just a bit from last week, the world as the Bible has revealed it to us is a place of a great cosmic battle. It is here where Adam, our first parent, forfeited his dominion over this world when he rebelled against God and obeyed the serpent. And he forfeited the dominion of mankind to that old serpent, the devil. And devil has been the god of this age and the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air governing and dominion the affairs of this world and the principles of this world with the hope of the promise of the seed of the woman that would come and crush him. And that happened as Jesus came into this world to bind the strong man, to plunder his goods, and to set up his kingdom in the place of Satan's. And Jesus, as the Apostle Paul called him in the book of Corinthians, that last Adam, he became the head of a new race. And he would lead a triumphant victory over the forces of darkness, over evil, over Satan, over sin, even over death. And he has conquered the world in his death on the cross and in his subsequent resurrection. And he came to save a people from their sins 
and their terrible plight here on this earth. And he did this all through suffering. And it saw fit to him, and it pleased him, to leave us in the world, but not to be of the world. And so we then carry on something that he began. He has set up his kingdom here, but the world is still at enmity against it. And there is a great antithesis that continues. But little by little, the kingdom of God is gaining ground. And it has been for 2,000 years. Christ continues to push back the borders of darkness to advance His kingdom of light. He dispels unrighteousness with righteousness. And He is doing this in the institution that He has established of His corporate people, the church, the body of Christ of which He is the head. And the church continues the work of Christ's mission as this last Adam is now commissioned by God Himself in much of the same way as the first Adam was, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over all of the face of the earth. So Jesus has done that in the coming and setting up of His kingdom here. We have been called to what Jesus did to make disciples of all the people, of all the nations of the world. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we've been called to continue. To take enemy ground and to advance the borders of Christendom from the seed of the serpent. That's what Jesus did and that's what He has called us to continue. And here in this beatitude, there is an implication, but it is not designed to be a discouragement. It is not even designed to warn us. Jesus is being encouraging to us here as He says, Blessed are you, happy you will be, and great is your reward when you follow Jesus and you're persecuted for righteousness. We will suffer for persecution and doing the work of the kingdom for being simply a faithful and loyal Christian. But here is a promise that the very kingdom for which we are suffering will be ours. For theirs is the kingdom. The reign and rule of Christ in this earth includes His reign over every aspect of what goes on here. When He came into this world, He came and He began to demonstrate all aspects of His dominion. And that's why we see so many of these vignettes in story and narrative form. He shows His rule and His dominion, His ultimate sovereignty even over the wind and the waves. And He's doing that in a very personal way. He shows His rule over the angels and over demons. He rules over sickness and over death. He rules over evil and over sin. We see this as He cast out demons. We see this as He forgives sins. We see this as He raises the dead and He heals the sick, as He calms the wind and the storm. Everything here on earth is under the dominion of King Jesus, the second and last Adam. And this rule and kingdom is made ours as we suffer for its righteousness. 
If you have your Bibles, turn over quickly to Matthew 25 and give you a little picture of where this gospel is going that we are in the beginning of, and this is more of the ending of it. And cast your eyes there with me, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the kingdom will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father. Now watch the next phrase. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. This kingdom and this rule of Christ as the second and last Adams prepared for you. Now the kingdom to which you have been called has your calling to it as your reward. In other words, there is an inseparable nature of the kingdom reward to that ministry, to the works that you have been called to in it, and the person that you are to be, and how you are to live your life, who you are as a kingdom subject. You have been summoned into the great court of God, and you have a place there, a seat there, a feast there. And Jesus wants you to know you have some ownership in this kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This is part of your inheritance. But there's a lot of work to be done for the cause of righteousness here on this earth. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say your father was a man who long ago saw a large piece of barren and forsaken land, and he took his life's savings and sacrificed everything he had to purchase this piece of land for your family. He then moves you with the rest of your family to this piece of wild terrain that was rough and uncultivated, a virgin piece of ground that had never been worked. And your father paints this beautiful picture of what he sees in this rough terrain into the future of what it can become. And you and your family get behind your father's vision and you join him and you go to work and you work for years and years together beside your father, developing the farm getting out the stubble, tilling the ground, and all the necessary work that goes into taking dominion over that. And when your old father finally dies in his old age, the land is cultivated, vineyards are growing, fruit trees are bearing, the fields are producing, and the once wasteland has now become fruitful and flourishing and productive. 
and you have shared in the work and you have felt the responsibility and you joined in the suffering that was necessary to bring the farm to its current state of health and production. And now you are the recipient of joys and rewards of what you have shared in all these years. Now, every illustration breaks down at some point, but that is a kernel of what Jesus is showing us here. This kingdom is yours, prepared before the foundation of the world, and and is that which is the dominion and the reign of Jesus in your life and over all of the world. And He will reward those in it who are linked to Him and inseparable in union with Him and in His sufferings for the cause of righteousness to beautify and to advance its fruitfulness. So let's look a bit more at who you are in this great kingdom and what you are doing here and why persecution comes to you for just being God's child in it. And if you had turned to Romans chapter 6, by way of reminder of who you are and what God has done for you in Christ. It is in the end of Romans 5 that we have this contrast of the first Adam with the last Adam. And the first Adam, we are told, Verse 17 of chapter 5, whereby the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. And we have two fathers. We have our father Adam who disobeyed and in him we have inherited his sin nature and the fallenness of this world and all of creation fell with it. And now here in Christ we have the last Adam that therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. So we have this contrast by one man, the other man. One man, the other man. These are two men. One Adam, the federal head of all the human race, and the second man, who is also fully God, the man... Jesus Christ, who is the federal head of a new race of people that He came to save. And when He has saved them, and His grace abounded over all of their sin, the Scripture tells us in chapter 6, verse 10, for the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, concluding, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now this is what He has done. As He has come in and He has now created warriors for His dominion 
by delivering you from the power of the enemy and set you up as princes in his kingdom, and now he is taking you and using you as implements of righteousness. The word instrument here, which is used both of unrighteousness and, well, as righteousness, is an implement. It is an implement that is often used as either a farming tool and often used as a weapon. Before you were saved, the scripture here says you were a tool. You were an instrument in somebody's hand under the dominion of sin, under Satan's influence, to be used as an implement of unrighteousness. An unregenerate man does not stand benign. He does not stand on neutral ground. He stands in the kingdom of of the seed of the serpent. Even if he is unaware, he stands against the righteousness of God. But the man who has been saved has been delivered from that dominion and power. He's been saved from this unrighteous standing, delivered out of the power and dominion that sin had over him, and is now an implement in God's hands for the cause of righteousness. His identity has been changed, his purpose is different, and the very thing he fought against is now the cause he champions. There is no middle ground. You are either an instrument of unrighteousness under the dominion of sin or an instrument of righteousness being led by God to advance his causes. There is no middle ground. There's only two sides. And those two sides are at antithesis with one another, opposed to one another, and are battling one another. And to be an instrument of righteousness, you will be on the side where unrighteousness will attack, just like it did our Lord Jesus. Notice the commentary, if you will, back in Matthew chapter 5 of this very beatitude. This is one of those that he takes a, another expanding thought on. And he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Because that will happen. That happened to Jesus. They accused him of things he did not do. They lied about Him. They could not stand His righteousness. It embroiled their spirit. And He says, if it happened to me, it will happen to you. It's not something you should lament over. It's not something that you need to regret. It's not something you need to shrink back from. This is a part of what God is doing in advancing His kingdom here. The evil side which will be working in and through men will speak evil against you falsely. They will lie about you. They will taunt you. They will defame your character. But if you, if these things are said against you falsely for the sake of Christ, just know that great is your reward. So first of all, you need to understand who you are. You've been freed from the dominion of sin, taken out of being an instrument of unrighteousness, and been made now an implement of God in this world to advance righteousness against the cause that stands against it. 
And that will not happen peaceably. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And so the Prince of Peace has to gain peace through battles won against unrighteousness. But as an instrument of righteousness, the Holy Spirit is the one that works in you in this world to advance His cause. And in John chapter 16, Jesus is preparing from this very thing. Right before He goes to be crucified upon the cross, He's giving an explanation of some things that will happen in the future and what their role will be in this. And how we continue in this narrative. In John 16, He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the Holy Spirit will be working in us and does work in us to bear the witness of who this Jesus is and who He is in this world that stands against all unrighteousness and convicts the world of these things. And as the world has hated Him, it will hate us. But the Holy Spirit will use us. The Holy Spirit will not use us to appease the world but quite the contrary, to convict it. The the word convict here means to state that someone has done something wrong with adequate proof of such wrongdoing. That is part of who you are as a Christian. Your life and being faithful to Christ and your walk in faith with Him will convict the world through the testimony of the Holy Spirit by what He's doing you as an instrument of righteousness. And that is why some people will just be so embroiled against you. Because as you walk in righteousness and are led there for His name's sake, the sight of darkness cannot tolerate. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Jesus came and He suffered and He died for the cause of righteousness. His mission to us was to advance His cause for which He came. And the way of unrighteousness will be dominated. And it will be dominated through a means of suffering. Through a means of suffering. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, to poured Himself out of His glory into humanity. In the fullness of time was born under the law, born of a woman who's been touched with all of our infirmities yet without sin. So now He can sympathize and be our great high priest. And as He was obedient, He was obedient even to the death of the cross. And for the joy set before Him, He endured the shameful death of the cross And he learned obedience through the things he suffered. God's kingdom advances through suffering for righteousness. That's why Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, and you will be hated by all 
for my name's sake. 2 Corinthians 1, 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Let me illustrate it from a, a biblical illustration in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. From this simple verse, it's a kind of a strong and an awakening verse in many ways. It gets our attention when Paul himself says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, the church. That's what this beatitude is expressing. That's what Paul is living In this great cosmic battle, there is sufferings to complete. A filling up, if you will. Christ endured His share for the church and leaves other sufferings for His people to fill up that which is not yet complete. Christ endured His share for the church. And yet, there are other sufferings that will are designed for other people that He has empowered, and particularly the leaders of the church. As you look to Paul's own testimony of what great sufferings he endured for the sake of the church, and he rejoiced to do it. Now this was not atoning suffering in any way whatsoever. It was not propitiatory sufferings. It was not expiatory sufferings. It was not that kind of suffering that was the objective suffering which Christ did upon the cross. For that was once and for all completely paid for and completely satisfied God in the account of sinful man. But these sufferings are born for the benefit of the body of Christ, the church. The Apostle Paul suffered greatly for the church and he rejoiced to do so. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 2 that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of His resurrection. That's what Paul sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ for. That's what he gave up all of the other things and counted them but dung, that he might know this. But it does not mean there was anything lacking in the atoning sacrifice. It does not mean that there are works to be added in order to complete the necessary merit of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that there are additional things to do in purgatory, of which there is none. That is not what Paul is meaning here. But Christ did render a complete satisfaction to God, but the enemies of God were not yet satisfied. God was satisfied, but the enemies were not. And they hate Jesus because of our inseparable association with Him. They also hate us. And in this sense, all true believers are in His stead, receiving the afflictions that are meant for Christ. And true believers in serving Christ will suffer for His church just like Jesus suffered for His church, or in a like analogy, but not atoning. For Paul, it was a high privilege and a great honor having been placed in a position which brings these sufferings on his head instead of the church generally. So he is thankful that he can suffer in behalf of the church to to lighten their sufferings even more. You see the, the, the parallel that is going on even in the ministry that he had.
In his own testimony, grief and lament are far from Paul's heart. The more suffering comes to him because of his office, the more he rejoices because the more the cause of Christ is advancing. Whether he's in prison and all the praetorium guard is hearing the news of the gospel and he's kept for a time from going on the journey where he had designed to go, he finds that the very journey of which he was supposed to be in is right where he was. And he rejoiced, and he is writing from prison and telling the people at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. These things that have happened to me are causing, are falling out for your good. For me, to live as Christ. For you, it is expedient and good. To die is gain. There's no loss here. And that is the same kind of attitude and the spirit that we are to have as we have the mind of Christ. And that is what He is trying to express to us in the second chapter there. And He says, For I am poured out as a drink offering for you. This is the Apostle speaking. Sacrificial language. And do notice here, there's a qualification in Matthew chapter 5. Qualification that we should note before we get to the blessing. Blessed are those, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice the text says there's a certain kind of suffering. Not a general suffering, but a special suffering related to something very specific. It's for the cause, for the sake of righteousness. There are all sorts of wrong sufferings that Christians even endure. Some Christians endure suffering because they're just difficult people. They're hard to get along with. Their temperament, their personality, and their struggle, they're hard to teach. And and yet they bring sufferings on their own head because of those things. Not for the sake of righteousness. There are those who suffer because they lack wisdom and in their own foolishness create problems for themselves. And there's folly there of which they suffer from. And that's not what it's talking about either. There's often suffering because of our own self-righteousness and our pride and our arrogance and our ego. But we have to understand the difference between a personal offense due to personality or temperament or folly or sin or whatever and the offense that we cause because of righteousness. And it's because of righteousness that we will be rewarded as we live faithfully for Jesus. And here is a great reward promised. In fact, he expounds upon it here. Happy. First of all, there's that blessedness of the beatitude that is promised. He comes back around and circles, for theirs is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. The very suffering for which you are suffering is for the advancement of the glories that you will one day receive and understand, and you will see the fruit of that tied to this great kingdom that you are serving now. Then he goes on and says, you know, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. And you know, from that, there are several things that often come to mind. This is not a meritorious earning of a reward at all. We will see that this kind of reward, as much as of grace as it is anything else that we receive in this life, It is from the hand of God and it's a grace. We will marvel that God gives us any kind of reward at all and it will certainly not be linked to our merits. 
but solely and completely to the merit of Jesus Christ. And yet in this, the implication is that God does not want us to be discouraged in this life. He did not call us to mock us. He did not call us to make us fail. He did not call us out of darkness so that we might waller in discouragement. He does not want us to be discouraged. He does not want us to be frustrated. And we should not be surprised by the foolishness we see in this world and read every day in the news. That should not surprise us. We should not say, oh, how could this be? Well, let me tell you, that's why he left you here. You have purpose here. Not to lament over all of the, and be surprised by all of the world But you are here, as we shall see, to be the salt and the light of the world. And you're going to be persecuted for it. And bad things are going to happen for it. But great is your reward. And you will be the most happy when you are living in conformity to the very truth that is herein revealed. God does not want you to feel overwhelmed by the wickedness of this world. Because Christ has overcome the world. He does not want you to be frustrated with life here. He doesn't want you to be anxious here, as we will see in a few short verses ahead. Don't worry about your life. If you seek my kingdom and my righteousness first, all these other things will be cared for. Don't be frustrated. Don't worry. And neither does God want us to withdraw from the battle thinking that is safer. It is not. God does not want us to retreat to a pursuit of personal peace and affluence because you will never find it in this life. But in the battle of righteousness and in receiving persecution for it, there is great reward even in the persecution. And the sufferings you are enduring now will be a cultivation of something that you will later enjoy. A Christian's life should be controlled by thoughts of heaven and the world to come and the glory of Christ's kingdom. And what he does in this life will always be in view of the next. As Lloyd-Jones says, my whole outlook upon everything that happens to me should be governed by three things. One, my realization of who I am. Number two, the consciousness of where I am going. And number three, my knowledge of what awaits me when I get there. The apostle said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a great or far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You keep your eyes on Jesus, and you are faithful to His cause, and you have declared His word, and you disciple the nations and teaching them whatsoever things He has commanded, and you just live your life. There will be persecutions that come. But when they come for those reasons and people accuse you falsely and say evil against you and lie against you, even if it's people within the church, 
Just know that great is your reward. God will bless you. And the more people revile you for the cause of righteousness, the greater your reward will be. So be happy. Be glad for that. And with the Apostle Paul, rejoice exceedingly that you were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, the things of which we read are not for natural ears or for hearts of unregenerate men. For they will seem very strange indeed. But we are thankful that you have changed us with your spirit. You have called us to a high and heavenly calling of which in this life we will not see all that there is. So we lay not up for ourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust does destroy and thieves do break in and steal. For our hearts are not there but in heaven itself where nothing can destroy But we do lament that we often do get our focus distracted and our minds too earthly and we forsake and forget the great thing for which we are headed. And we withdraw oftentimes from the battle. We feel our spirit growing weary and well-doing. We often wonder sometimes in our doubt and despair, what's the use? And yet, we are thankful for the sustaining graces of Jesus Christ and for the promise that He that has begun a good work in us will complete it and that He is working in us and through us to do of His good will and His good pleasure. And so with that, we are reminded as we come into the sanctuary once again the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His kingdom. And we are thankful that we are called Your people. We are thankful for this character that you have given and developing in us to be poor in spirit, to mourn and grieve over our sin and over the sins of others and over the sins of this world, and to be meek and to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We are thankful that we seek peace and pursue holiness. We are thankful, Lord, that You do promise us life and happiness and joy and gladness and great reward even as we live for the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying with what He has done and being obedient to the commission that He has given. Knowing that that will happen and it will occur in triumphant glory and what You have bid us to do, we know He will bring it to pass. And so we take great confidence in the life that You've given us now, giving You all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.